You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at thebannerchurch.com. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. You can actually turn this up, Davis. I'm going to hold it a little lower today because uh, I was realizing on our, I don't know if you guys listen to our podcast, but um, I was realizing that when I tell a joke and you all laugh, you're like, we do? You, you do. Uh, that no one else on the podcast can hear it. So it goes like Josh says something half funny to humor me, you all laugh, and then it's just like cricket, cricket, cricket. And then I just continue. So if you're listening online, you're like, this is the least funny church ever. So I'll probably have it down here, so if that helps you, brother. There you go. Hey, uh, if you were here last week, uh, we had this awesome privilege of having Pastor Chris with us and uh, really an incredible opportunity to work with Convoy of Hope and Feed One, which is a ministry for $10 a month. You can sponsor a kid so they can have food, but beyond food, um, they can have really just value instilled into their life. And so we did these, and we collected about 50 of these, and so we're really close to the number that we're believing for a hundred children sponsored. Can we celebrate that? And I know that some of you guys, you did it online and, and all kinds of things, so I, I just encourage you. Again, this doesn't go to me. All these numbers go to them, but we have to send these out tomorrow. So if for some reason you weren't able to sponsor that, be a part of that, and you would like to do that, uh, you can, I have this one right now. You can take it if you want. Uh, I don't know if anybody wants this. Good. All right, perfect. Right there, Trey. This one's yours. <laughs> um, here. Somebody go give this to him. Who do I have? Who do works for me? Oh, Jacob. You don't technically, but perfect. Hey, uh, and there's a bunch in the back. So if you still want to do that, you can do it online. I told people go to feedone.com or .org or something. If you type in feed one, you can go there. Or you can do it um, here. We have some packets, and we'll send them all together. And uh, really, really incredible thing. I'm just so thankful for what God is doing to the generosity of this church. And you guys are incredible. You're generous. And I know that God is going to continue um, to just bless this church because of that. As this church has stepped out in faith and been generous, God has always blessed us. You know, God has always been faithful to us. So I'm really excited about that. Um, how awesome was baptism today? Did you guys enjoy that? That was a blast. I'm, that was cool. Was the water okay for anybody who wants to get baptized? It was okay? It was a little cold? Okay. <laughs> um, hey, I, it's been really cool looking around even this morning and seeing uh, Caleb and seeing, um, uh, I think Megan serving in kids. There's just not this many, different ones. Um, there's people serving all over who came to that Discover class who are now connected in. And so not only is, like, God transforming their life, but they're, like, outpouring into the church that's doing that. So I just really encourage you. Maybe you've been here for one week, six weeks, ten weeks, twenty weeks, and you've never been to Discover. You don't really feel connected. That's just such an awesome way to start. So just come, eat free pizza, do whatever, and uh, it's, it's pretty chill. So... Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, you're actually joining us, or maybe you've been gone all summer, welcome back, we're glad you're here. Uh, you're joining us in the middle of our psalm series called Summer Soundtrack, and we have this very cool 80s uh, vibe. I didn't know Stranger Things was coming out, I should have gone like that way. Um, <laughs> um, but we've been talking through the psalms and really like what they mean and trying to give context about the song of our heart and our life and what these speak to us, that so they're not just like this middle portion of 119 chapters, or 150, 45, there we go, chapter 50, 150, wow, my brain is a little slow today, I'm sorry, 150 chapters of all this different stuff, but uh, they're, they're really powerful and life-changing, and so it's even today, uh, as I prepare to speak this message, I really want to encourage you that God can do a miracle in your life, 
Hear me when I say this. Some of you came to church and you are fully not expecting God to do anything, and that is okay. But I want you to hear me say to you that God can do a miracle in your life. And if you would just go into that with, with a heart that says, I don't know if he can, but I'm willing to be open if he will, uh, I believe that he can in your life. Because God is a miracle-working God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, well, hey, as I was like, reading and preparing for this, ironic, you know how your brain gets on things. And um, when I was in college, one of the jobs that I had was tiling, and it was construction and uh, bathroom uh, remodel. And I really enjoy that because I enjoy working with my hands. Uh, but one of the only frustrating thing about tile, and the people that tiled this room would probably tell you, uh, is the angles, right? Has anyone, is anyone here in construction? Like, angles will literally make you angrier than anything else. Because um, I don't, it's not that I didn't listen in trigonometry. It's just that I didn't listen uh, in trigonometry. And because when they taught me sine, cosine, and tangent in my brain as whatever age I was, that was the least thing that I cared about. And even if they had told me, like, hey, you know, in 15 years, 20 years, you're going to be tiling a house, and you're going to need to know how to get the angle versus other angles. I ended up just, like, drilling two boards together and jamming them against the corner and figuring it out that way. But I was like, oh, I need to know, you know, how do I find the angle from this thing? Anybody who's a math person here is, like, cringing. Like, if you just would do the 60 degree to the 30 degree and then half of that X2, and I don't even know what that means. I literally made all of that up. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That wasn't me. Debate. That was my, that was my class. <laughs> Math, not so much. Um, uh, but I, I was in this mode tiling this house, and I had all the right pieces. I just couldn't get them to fit together. And it's like the more I cut and the more I did and the more I tried, the more broken they would become and the more cost I was incurring for the tile because you got to, like, bid ahead of time, right? And so it's like it's costing me money. So I'm calling up my engineer friends. I'm like, hey, man, you guys went to school for this, right? You build bridges and stuff. You know what angles are. They're like, yeah, man, we just use the computer. None of us know how to do math. And I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> None of this is working at all, right? It's like how do I have all all the right pieces. And, and it's funny because at the time, trigonometry seemed so like, why are you teaching me all these rules and all these things that aren't going to apply? Right? Like, why are you teaching me all of these things? I didn't realize that I didn't care about the principle because I didn't know what it was intended to do. I didn't know what it was supposed to actually unlock. And sometimes the things that we see as restrictions or rules are actually keys to something better. Follow me. The, the, the things that we so often don't understand or have been seen a bad version of, we think that they're restrictive when really they're supposed to open the door to something better. And so since I didn't understand the principle, I didn't learn it, and so I spent time breaking tiles apart trying to do it. So I was frustrated longer than I should have been. I was more exhausted than I should have been. I was, uh, it took a little longer than I should have been, so it cost me money. But if I had understood the principle when I was being taught it and understood that it wasn't meant to restrict me or, or bum me out or waste my Wednesday doing trigonometry homework, if I would have understood what it meant in my life, I probably would have cared more about it, right? Are you with me? And so I think sometimes there are principles in our life that if we can understand why they're important and what door they open, we can understand that they are beautiful, not a burden, so many things are like this in our life. I love our little kids are worshiping. Can you guys hear them? Oh, they just stopped right when I said that. 
but some things in our life are like this, right? Diet, right? Like, uh, you can understand when you're young, like, the food pyramid, which now is wrong, which is, like, who knows what to believe anymore. It's like, eat only fat, eat no fat, eat all bread, jam the bread up into things that look like fat, and then eat it, and then go to the, I don't know what to do anymore. <laughs> Just eat vegetables. But like diet, right? Diet is a principle. Healthy principles lead to, they're not restriction, they're an opening to better living, to healthier living, to happier life when you're healthy. How about humility? Like humility doesn't sound great, right? It is not natural for us but as we're humble it removes pride you can't have relationships without humility humility is the key that opens the door to greater relationships how about patience my daughter does not understand how patience is a key to her future (laughs) she understands that now is the key to cookies and so when I tell you need to be patient she literally looks at me and says no and it's just so honest, and I feel that in my soul, because I also say no to patience, right? And she, she doesn't understand that patience, she's not going to get a job. She's not going to have vision. She's not going to have relationships. She's not going to do anything really in life. She's going to bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce between one thing and another unless she has patience. So I'm not restricting her by teaching her patience. I'm giving her a key to her life. And all throughout life, uh, there are keys that we have and principles that we have that are blessings that we're given that have direct consequences that are either good or bad in our life. If we choose to, to understand the principle, it makes things obviously flow and easier. In this, If I had understood trigonometry, I wouldn't have used the words that I will not repeat in this church to, to really describe tiling. Right? If I had understood things in my life about pride, if I had understood things in my life about lust, if I had understood things in my life about greed or anger, there's things I would have understood that I would have tried to avoid. And so there are principles all throughout our life and even throughout our culture. I try watching the news. Does anyone here watch the news? And you just be honest. It's like six people. That number dwindles every year. It's like if it was like how much of us know memes about Area 51, like half of the church would know that's under under 30. <laughs> but if it's like how many know like a news anchor's name, you're like, oh, that one guy that, you know, someone yelled about. <laughs> but that's about it for us. But I, I watch the news just because I'm curious what some people think is happening. And uh, I would say when I look at the news, what I see is just like a bunch of broken pieces of tile that for the most part, everyone is sitting around staring at, not using a, the principle, trying to jam into place to make it work. And occasionally we might get one piece in, but then you try to put the next piece in and it bumps it out. And there's just kind of this scramble of brokenness occurring. And everyone's kind of standing around saying, this is what our culture needs. It's like we have the right pieces, but it's not fitting together. Anyone else can recognize this in our culture? Anyone else recognize that? It's like we have this beautiful collection of pieces, but it's more fragmented than ever. And as I was reading this scripture, it really popped into my brain how, you know, just how fragmented I I think that we are racially. How fragmented I think we are when it comes to different generations. More than ever, generations of, oh, you're a boomer, or oh, you're a millennial, or oh, you know, I mean, you're, you're this or this or this. You know, this fragmented understanding of age, gender, politics. Literally, go ask somebody, like, what their real thought in politics is. You're going to have to ask them, like, eight times. You're going to have to get, like, a written statement that you will not tweet about what they said. They're going to have to put it into print. You're going to have to go to Chase and get it notarized, and then they will really tell you what they think, right? <laughs> but this is the way. It's like we're all broken. We're all 
uh, frustrated, but we just don't know the solution. And so it's like, okay, what's the solution to racial prejudice? What's the solution to identity crisis? What's the solution to political conflict? Because let me tell you, it's not solved by an election. If your hope is that the next election will solve the identity crisis in our country, I'm just going to give you um, just a blast of truth right now. It will not, no matter who wins, it won't. It's not going to be solved by government programs. It's not going to be solved by changing your Facebook profile image. You're not going to solve racial equality because you put up a different Facebook profile. So what is going to solve it then? What is the key? What, what builds wholeness in our people? Because I don't know about you, but I have a daughter, and I want her to live in a place that, that is united and caring and loving and supporting and believing. But I believe that God has given us a key. And the good news about this is that it's not, we're not the first group of people that have cried out to God for this. We're not even the most broken group of people to cry out about this. We're giving them a good run for their money, but we're not. In fact, it's not even the first and most broken version of this nation to cry out for God for wholeness, of this actual even country, of this actual even place. And God is a miracle-working God. Hear me, if someone is giving you a weird picture of God, let me tell you, God is a God of restoration. God is a God of wholeness. God wants to do a miracle in your life. God wants to do a miracle in your family, in this city, in this nation. God is a God who is about restoration. He's not trying to destroy. He's trying to restore. And so he's given us this key. And in your own life, you might be thinking, man, I'm not even like out here. I'm like right here. I need unity. I need freedom and forgiveness. And so I'm going to tell you, God has given, you, given us as a church a key to freedom and forgiveness. And here's what it is. It's three words, culture of repentance, a culture of repentance. You're like, of course you say that. You're the pastor. You have to say words like repentance. That's a scary word from kids' church <laughs> if you grew up in church. And so I'm just going to say give me time to explain this to you because I think, again, just like me in, in math, I, didn't, I thought it was restrictive, but really it was supposed to be freeing. And because I misunderstood it, I misunderstood the joy that comes from it. Let me tell you, every great revival or awakening that has happened in the world hinges on repentance, not services, not Wednesday night prayer meetings. Repentance, that's what it hinges on. And here's why. Because healing starts inward, follow me, and works out. We cannot heal out until we heal in. I'm going to talk more um, in a coming series um, called Your Story Matters and talking about, you know, church functioning between the Sundays and the life. But before that, I really believe as a church, um, as a group of people, we need to build a culture of repentance. And I'm going to explain to you in full what that means this morning. Uh, and we're going to do so by looking at King David. So if you brought your Bible, I want you to open up. We're going to go to two places. One is 2 Samuel 11. And the other one's going to be Psalm 51. Um, 2 Samuel 11 won't be on the screen. I'm just going to kind of read and summarize. And if you'd like to follow along, you can. Uh, but 2 Samuel 11, we've been talking about King David. And I told you last or two weeks ago, if you were here, about how King David had to flee the palace. The, the kind of um, results of some of his decisions were some pretty harsh consequences. 
And uh, I'm going to explain to you one of those decisions today. So here it is, 2 Samuel, verse 11. Or sorry, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. There you go. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, this is important. I, I shared this a couple weeks ago. Everybody goes out to fight. David remains in the palace. And so you just kind of got a picture. David, who's supposed to be leading the people, who's supposed to be going out to fight, who was close to the Lord when they were fighting, when he was believing, when he had faith, he chooses instead to stay in the comfort zone. Because if you read earlier, you know how many concubines uh, he had, so you kind of know what was on his mind. And so he decides to stay back in the palace in this comfortable place. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So David sent and inquired about the woman. That's one way to say it. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So right there, right, I mean, David immediately repented, right? He was like, oh, my gosh, this was awful, right? No, he doubled down, right? That is, like, the nature of humans is I don't know what it is. I might be the only person, but it's like, you know when you're confronted and initially your response is not like, I'm so messed up, I've messed up. Your response is like, all right, what are we going to do with this? Like, how are we going to make this work? What if I just ramped it up another level and just kept doing more? And so this is what David does. I'm just going to describe to you what he does. He calls her husband in, classy move this. Calls her husband in from battle and says, hey, man, you've been doing a great job. I think you should go home with your wife. Kind of like implications assumed, right? Uh, you should go. And he's like, no, I'm not going to go home with my wife. I'm going to sleep by the gate because of my, if my fellow men don't get to go home and get what they want, I'm not going to go home and get what I want. And so, you know, David's obviously trying to, you know, make some moves here, make it work. And it doesn't work. So what he does is David tells his army this is where he begins to lose respect for the army, because if you pull others into your cover-up, they're just going to lose respect for you. That's how it works. And so he tells the army, okay, hey, put Uriah in the front, and when he runs out, just pull everybody back. So just imagine this scene. Here's Uriah. He's, he's faithful. He's committed. And he runs out like Braveheart scene. He's like, for, for Israel, for the Lord, for King David. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> and behind him is just no one. They're like, oh, <clears throat> they're just like waiting like 150 feet back. And so he dies. And so then David takes, because of course, he takes Bathsheba. He's like, well, I mean, she's single. Takes her, and now she's one of his wives. And so here's what happens. 2 Samuel 12.1, it says, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. I love this. He comes to me and he tells him a story. One rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd or prepare for the guests who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he, he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Not sure how he's going to do that once he's dead. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I'm going to stop there. So Nathan comes to David. And he says, David, here's a story about this lamb. And David's like, man, that guy should die for taking that guy's sheep. And he's like, come on, man, you took a guy's wife. And so David is in this moment uh, of recognizing. You ever been just confronted by something so heavy you don't know where to go? It's like if there was a restart button, you would just mash that thing just to go back and tell yourself, don't be an idiot. Don't do this. Why? What? Literally none of this is going to turn out the way you thought. And so you're just sitting there feeling the weight of what you've done. I think most all of us have been there in our life at one point, feeling the heavy weight uh, of what we've done or what we've, how we've hurt other people. And so here's David, and he's in this place of experiencing the great weight upon his shoulders. He's lost his son as a consequence of this whole thing. The, the son that he was going to bear ends up passing away. There's just there's heaviness. And so out of this heaviness, David writes what I think is one of the most beautiful psalms in the Bible and begins to very clearly step out of the darkness that he has walked himself into. And I want to read that this morning. If you brought your Bibles, open to Psalm 51. If not, it will be on the screen. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. See how that little bit doesn't really fully explain everything that just happened? This is David in this moment as he's been confronted by Nathan. And he's just sitting there in the loss and the struggle and in the hurt. And he's just looking at the pieces all together of his nation that now distrusts him and the army that doesn't trust him and, and, and doesn't love him. And he looks at all the things and the people in his family now that, that are looking at him and the people in his life. And they're just broken and coming apart. And he writes this. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be water than, whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
Man, if, if you've ever been brokenhearted, I think the psalm is so identifiable. You could just feel in David the heart. And yet what David teaches in this is so beautiful and so powerful in our life because he's teaching us. Though the word repentance is never mentioned literally in this scripture. In Hebrew, it doesn't say the word repentance. It's a culture, an attitude of repentance that steps him into where we read the joy of salvation. And there's three things this morning. If you're writing notes, you should have got when you got the calendar a little notepad. But there's something I want you to write down. It's repentance starts by looking to the character of God. See, that's what's great about Psalm 51, if we're going to be honest. Is it starts by him saying, have mercy, O God, according to your steadfast mercy. Your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. See, I think we take this for granted, but in the ancient Near East, in the, uh, you know, the, the area and the time as described as the ancient Near East, uh, like, repentance did not look like this. Repentance was um, more like appeasement, right? Like if you offended a God in that time, in the time of Israel, like you had to appease them. Sometimes there were so many gods because of polytheism, you didn't know. So it's like, well, we got to burn a little grain, and then we got to sprinkle a little water, then we got to kill this, 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 and then we got to like throw some leaves or whatever we got to do, like in order in case we offended grain God and like leaf God. I don't know, just everything you can imagine. It was more about appeasing an angry God. And so it's funny because, like, we laugh at that in our minds, but that's still kind of us sometimes. Anyone ever feel like you need to appease an angry God? Okay, cool. Just me. Um, <laughs> we're not there yet. I know we're not vulnerable enough. We'll get you there. Don't worry. But it was about appeasement. And so this repentance is so different. This more goes with the term that would be in Hebrew, which is closer in English, to return. This idea is, is returning, it's, it's, going, it's, it's turning from a road of rebellion and turning towards the road of peace, the road that follows God, the road that's in alignment with him. And so what David is describing is David isn't trying to appease an angry God. If you've been told you need to appease an angry God, someone lied to you. Let me tell you the God that David's talking to you. Psalm 145.8 says this, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That might be hard for you to get because you had a father or a figure in your life who was not slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But hear me say, when David is crying out to God, his steadfast love, his abundant mercy, he's remembering, God, that you are good and that you are merciful. I love that word, abundant mercy. He didn't put like a drop of mercy, a little bit of mercy, kind of some mercy on the side, right? This is like the big 72-ounce steak that man versus food has to try to eat his way through, and he can never get through it. That is the abundant mercy. It's just so filling. It's so much. It's so good. He's appealing to the mercy of God. See, there's power in knowing God's character. We say to read the word of God because it's powerful when you know the character of the God that you proclaim to serve. Because if you don't fully understand his character, like I didn't fully understand trigonometry, then you're just going to be confused and you're going to respond to what you hear and not what you know. And what you should know is that God is abundant in mercy. It's scary to repent if God is an angry dad. 
If God is an angry father that's going to give you the belt for once again going and doing that thing and breaking this thing and hurting that person and going through this, I'm not saying he's erasing consequences, but if God's going to beat you for doing the things wrong and it's all about wrong and it's all about what you've done wrong and how you've got to earn it back, then, then it is scary to repent. But that's not my God. That's not the God of the word of God. Like, man, Old Testament, God's angry. Not this one. I don't know which one. You're. This one is abundant in mercy and abundant in grace. And this is so important. That's why we got to look to God because repentance doesn't start by looking at our character and looking at our sin. It's by looking to God. See, if you dwell too long on your sin, you know what you're going to get? Depressed. I'm not saying don't pay attention to your sin. I'm not saying don't let it convict you. I'm just saying if we dwell so long just staring into the abyss of our brokenness, we're just going to get depressed. And there's a beautiful thing happening where he's recognizing his sin, but he's responding to God. And, and he's realizing that freedom starts when we repent before a merciful and loving God. And so he comes before God. I mean, just imagine all the pain and suffering he's just committed. And he comes to God, and his first request isn't, God, I'm a loser. God, I suck. God, I'm the worst. God, I don't even know how you could ever love me. What does he say? Very first thing, have mercy according to your love. Have mercy according to your love. To your mercy. Treat me according to your grace. Because see, David, I mean, he was king, so he didn't get it. But any of us did this. Trust me, if you rape somebody and then murder their husband and then do like a faux marriage, you're going to jail. <laughs> Just heads up. David deserved to die. And you know, it doesn't say this here. I, I think he did. Deserve death for adultery, rape, murder. He knows what he deserves. And he's not asking God to remove the consequences. He's coming before God's character saying, I know what I deserve. I know as a broken person. I know as somebody who, who, who drove away from that conversation, go, man, why did you say that? Why did you act that? Why, why would you do that? You're such an idiot. Like, I, I, I know that person. But he's saying, God, respond to me according to your love. See, freedom comes not because, like, you finally feel better. Freedom comes because you just fall under the character of God. And say, God, I want your mercy. God, I want your love. God, treat me according to your grace. Second thing is that the culture of repentance requires fully owning our sin. I put fully because I think that's important. Fully owning our sin. See, this is the thing. You're already free through Christ Jesus. Like, hear me this morning. You're already free through Christ. You've, you already have victory through him. But before you can step into that freedom and that victory in the fullness that God intended for you, you got to get free of all the things that are trying to hold you to your brokenness, to the past, to your sin, to your shame. It's right there. But we hold on to all this stuff. In Psalm 51.3, if you're following along in your Bible, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Uh, that, that's important. My sin is always before me. This is probably one of the most humanly identifiable parts, which is I sinned, then I sat for a year in my sin, afraid that someone was going to find out. And it has always been, ever been before me. I won't make you raise your hand, but I think like most of us know that feeling. My sin is ever before me. It's a year in fear. A year in denial, a year in shame. Can I tell you, God does not want you to waste another minute of your life trapped in the chains that he already sent his son to break away from you. 
He doesn't want you to waste another second. He doesn't want you to go out of this place and out of this building. He doesn't want want you to get out of your seat even. He wants right where you are. He wants you to be free of the thing that he sent his son to free you from. But we have to own it. We love facing other people's sins for them. Facebook. (laughs) But we don't love facing our own sins. Or we have all these like really clever tools with nice names like uh, justification. That sounds nice. It has the word just, kind of like justice. It sounds, But really it's just us explaining why we had to do it or why our upbringing made us do it or why the way we look or why that's not my responsibility. I didn't know it was a big deal. Rationalization. I think our favorite one, ignore it. Right, like I'm just going to pretend it's not even there. If I pretend it's not there long enough, eventually it will just go away and I'll move on and I'll grow. But our sin has shrapnel. Even the most secret sin in your life that you think is just affecting you, it's not. Your sin has shrapnel. Your sin hurts others around you. And you might be able to ignore, you might be able to push it down, but others can't. And a culture of repentance, I know this is tough. I know we like flowers on everything, but, 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 but you need reality. We need realness. We need transformation. So I'm going to tell you this morning, a culture of repentance has to face the harsh and difficult conversations surrounding the consequences of sin. We're often willing to own the sin, but not the consequences. And some of you this morning, you need to own those consequences. Now, God has freed you. God has given you mercy. God has given you grace. But if we avoid it, there's this breakdown. Here's the breakdown. This is cultural. Is that sin creates hurt. And that hurt that isn't healed passes down as bitterness. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it may become defiled. See, when hurts, this is, this, hear this or write it down or something that gets in your brain. When your hurts are not healed, they're handed down. This is how it works, generation upon generation, is that we are in this cycle where we hold sins against us, things people have done to us. Maybe it's because of how you look or your skin color, your nation of origin or your, or your preferences or your identity and, and someone has harmed you or, or harmed you in a way and we hold on. And because we're holding on to other people's, we don't get free of our own. And so we get in this terrible cycle of just being holding on and holding on. And basically right now, everyone's hurt, everyone's offended, and nobody's free. Have you ever met somebody like this? Like they can't uh, acknowledge that any of their actions have ever hurt anybody. Like they just, they can't even get there mentally that any part of their life could have hurt somebody. And often it's because they are so hurt. Hurt people hurt people. That's how it works. And we're all hurt people, hurting people, putting up Facebook posts to love everyone. But God has called us to health and wholeness. And my my heart breaks for that cycle of bitterness because I'll just see generation after generation after generation of person who will treat somebody a certain way because their father's father's father was hurt by somebody of a certain skin color or maybe a certain nation. So then that means that all Mexicans are this way. How is that what God intended? 
that, that, that because of this, 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 all people of this gender are a certain way. All people of this skin color are a certain way. All people of this identity are a certain way. All people that are different than you are a certain way. It's because you will not allow yourself to be healed. So God will not heal anything out. If you would just allow God to release the sin and the brokenness and the hurt inside of you, he wouldn't just break your chains. He would break your generational chains that have told you because someone is from this part of the world, they're worse or less valuable or they're going to or they're going to do this or act this way and for some reason you don't want to talk that way or think that way, but your family's put it into your brain because for years and years and your dad and your weird uncle and the person that's got to say it and you, you don't see them anymore as a person whose family is suffering. Now you see their skin color and their nation of origin and God's saying, of course you can't. You don't value yourself. How are you going to value the people south of the border? Again, this is not a build or don't build a wall speech. So if you text me about it afterwards, then you miss the point. And we're going to have a conversation. I love this country. Don't you dare. Like the most patriotic person you know. But this is my point is that you are created beautiful, and you are created unique, and God created you special, and you were not meant to be trapped in bitterness. You were not meant to be trapped in your parents' thoughts and hurts. You were not meant to be trapped in what people had done to you and that you've done to others. You're not meant to be stuck in that cycle. You're meant to be free. You're meant to be released. You're meant to be powerful. You're meant to see the miraculous. God has given his spirit to you so that you could lay your hands on people and they would be healed. That's what you're meant for. We're not meant for classism, racism, sexism, identity, politics. We're meant to be people that love people as God loves people. But it's not going to happen unless it starts right here in a culture of repentance. This is why I love God. Is that God accepts you in your sin, but God's confrontational. I appreciate that about God because I'm confrontational. I love that Chris shared last week that non-confrontational was just being selfish. That really resonated with me because people come and tell me, hey, you really need to talk to this person about what they posted on Facebook, you know, about these people. And I'm like, you need to talk to them. I didn't see it. Now it's going to be weird because I'm going to tell them you told me. Because, <laughs> like, I'm not throwing myself under the bus. Like, I'm going to be like, yeah, no, I mean, Rick said that you did this. They're going to be like, oh, man, what the heck? Why didn't you just tell me? I'm like, I don't know, man. I didn't believe in the Bible. <laughs> But God is confrontational. God is always going to confront you in your sin. Why? Because God did not create you to leave you in your chains. I, if I saw my own daughter in chains, I would do everything I could to break those chains and free her. God has done that for you. He's given you Jesus Christ to free you. And love confronts sin. Love is not a random junk drawer that we throw every feeling we don't know what to do about so we don't confront people. Love confronts sin because love says, I love you so much. I care for you so much that I'm willing to have these conversations. I'm willing to have them internally and externally that says, I don't want you to die in isolation. I want you to experience the freedom of coming in to, to, to relationship with Jesus Christ. And it might hurt. I'm willing to sit with you, to cry with you, to laugh with you, to be joyful with you. I know people might have treated you different or acted differently towards you, but I'm welcoming you in. And I want you to come in, and I want us to be in a confronting but loving relationship. 
See, love confronts what separates so that freedom and forgiveness can begin. That comes from that culture. John 3.16, you probably know this verse uh, if you've been around church or been to a sports game, um, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Great verse. But verse 17 says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, we can talk about healing and unifying and loving this country till we are blue in the face. But there will not be freedom and there will not be forgiveness until there is repentance right here. That's where it starts. You want to see your society healed of racial profiling and privilege and hurt? Starts right here. The hearts of every person, every race, every color, every creed, it starts right here. It starts by not saying, well, I don't know, I don't think that, I don't know. It, just, it starts right here. Start right here. I care what you feel, start here. You want to break away pornography. You want to break, break away sex trafficking, child sex trafficking. You know where that starts? It starts right here in the hearts of men. Don't look at porn. Don't sleep with hookers. You don't need any of the other stuff. Was hookers too much? I'm sorry. <laughs> You're like, yeah, he had tattoos. We knew it was going to go bad. <laughs> Said porn and hookers on the same service. <laughs> well, welcome to Banner Church. <laughs> but I think if we want to see equality, if we want to see unity, it starts right here in our hearts. And the third thing, to invite our band up this morning on that note, uh, is that repentance brings about real transformation. This is so key. Re I'm talking real transformation. See, God wants to heal all of your heart. Psalm 54, when he says, against you only have I sinned. He's not saying, like, God, you're the only person I've hurt. He's recognizing that our sin, our brokenness is against God. It's, it's against who God created us to be, to walk in unity with him. And so he's hurt lots of people, but he's recognizing, God, I have sinned against you. I went from integrity to idolatry. I chose to fill myself with something other than you. And then in Psalm 51, 6, he says, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. I think of it like this. Uh, we have a bathroom here uh, that sometimes the, the pipe, it'll like get kind of dried up. And if you don't pour water down it, it'll begin to stink a little bit. And uh, one, one time I was gone for a couple days, and someone's solution, unnamed, was to just close the door. And so when I came in, I'm like, what is that smell? Like, it's everywhere, right? What is this? And I'm, like, going around. I'm, like, okay, did we leave stuff in the cafe? It was like, no, everything's so clean. Like, what happened? Everything is so clean. Why does it smell so bad? It looks so good. Why does it stink? And finally, I open up the door, and it's like, <laughs> wafting, right? Because your heart is just like this building, is that you can't just close one door and hope that the stink won't come through. you got to just open it all up because you can't get cleaned if it's closed and like you weren't meant to be 95% free you were built to be 100% free God built you to do a 100% miracle in your heart not like a 92% it's like well when I'm worthy and I go to discover then I'll get the 8% like 100% 
1 John 1, 8 through 9 says, if we have no sin, we deceive, we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance brings about real transformation. I love that in the psalm. If you look at this verse, it's one of my favorite but subtle parts. He says in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Purge meaning not like the movie, but purge like to clean and to purify. And he's saying that this word hyssop, and it comes from Exodus 12, 22, when the Israelites uh, were in captivity and they were in slavery in Egypt. And God sends Moses and, and the plagues come, and finally there's going to be this final plague, and the angel of death is going to come. And so God tells the people he loves, he says, listen, in order to show that you are marked saved, I want you to take the blood of a spotless lamb and I want you to slaughter the lamb on a certain day. We talk about this on Palm Sunday. Slaughter a lamb at a certain day and then take with hyssop and wipe the blood over the doorway ceremonially. And it stood from there as a ceremonial symbol as they would wipe it of a sacrifice that was paid to cover my sins so that I might be free. I'm going to give you bite of good news here is that you don't need to go find some hyssop this morning. You don't need to go slaughter your precious perfect lamb. You don't need to go find an animal at McCormick Farms. None of that. Because the lamb has already been sacrificed for you and I. And that's Jesus Christ. And what that means is the price for your life has already been paid. You've already been cleaned with that. And, and what happens is you don't need rituals. You just need to step in to what Jesus has said and receive the freedom of what he's done. And understand that God is a God of miracles in your life. There's nothing that you've broken. There's no brokenness inside of you that he cannot restore. Look at David. Unless you have most recently raped and murdered somebody, you're still ahead of the game. But at the end, your sin is still your sin. And even saying that, it's not going to make you feel better. What's only going to make you restored and renewed is the miraculous love of Jesus Christ that comes in because of his blood. See, a culture of repentance is not scary. It's freeing. It feels like you should run to it. Like, how, I mean, how much longer do I got to sit in this seat and this guy's going to talk so I can just come forward and lay this junk at the altar and just be done with it and just be free and just be over it? The culture of repentance is key for freedom and forgiveness. In Psalms, he says, restore me to the joy of salvation. Can I tell you, our culture needs to be restored, restored to the joy of salvation. We don't need more hate. We don't need more racism. We don't need more division. We don't need more anger. We don't need more downers. We need more of the joy of salvation. Every race, every tribe, every tongue, we need the joy of salvation. I really believe that the culture of repentance is a picture of equality because it says, listen, we're all messed up. We're all broken. And yet God loves us all. We're all hurt. We're all wounded. And yet God heals us all. And God breaks the cycle. And can I tell you, if that's something you struggle with, the more that you receive the love of Jesus here and understand what love is, the more you're going to love out there. The more you understand that Jesus came from every person, even that person that you profile, then you'll understand how to love them out there. 
It comes from right here in our heart. If you're here and someone has treated you differently because of the country you came from or the language you speak or, that, or, or, or your background or your family or attitude, can I just tell you, Jesus accepts you right now. Every person, the love of Jesus this morning. You don't have to quantify or qualify that to me. That's, I'm not God. I'm not the Bible. My job is to preach to you that this morning there's freedom through Christ Jesus to release you of all your sins and lay them down and be freed. God so loved the world, all of us. We're all messy. We're all broken. But the great equalizer starts here and says, I repent of everything. I lay it down to you, God. Begin the work here. Begin the work here. If you want to change out there, begin the work here. Before you can change my country, begin the work here. Before you can change my neighborhood and my family, begin the work here. I'm tired of carrying it. You stand with me this morning. My family, we used to go for Christmas, and we used to build houses uh, in Ensenada. It was, it was a blast. Um, and when we would build, we would build on these hills, and they're mostly a uh, uh, kind of sand, dirt, come back, well, like here. <laughs> uh, and when you're out all day and you're working and you're working and you're working, you get that grime, you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like your eyes, you're like, how many times I got to rub my eyes and they're still gritty? You just feel that on you. And there would be this moment where we go back to the, to the center. It was this converted, converted being a loose word hotel. Um, it was concrete. And we would just, I'd get in the shower and you just feel that like grime just wash off of you. And you just feel it wash away. And it was like you could smell it on you, you could feel it on you, but when you got into that clean water, and it, at first it was kind of a shock, but as you got in that water, you would just feel it, just wash away, just wash down every part. That's what the grace of God feels like. That's what the grace of God feels like. It doesn't feel like a beating, it feels like a beautiful blessing where he just washes you and you feel clean not holier than thou, just thankful for the mercy and grace of God. And the beautiful thing is you don't have to wait. You don't have to go to another service. You don't got to go to another place. This morning, God can do a miracle in your life and free you from what has held you right now. Some of you came into this place and you feel that brokenness and you feel these things of, I just want to get this off of my shoulders. I want to get this off of my heart. I want the freedom and forgiveness that comes through him. When, when, when can I just feel free? When can I feel that released over my life? When can I feel that released? I'm just here to tell you, it's right now. God can do that in your life right now in the name of Jesus. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. If that's you, and you're hurting, or you're broken, or you're lost, or you're trapped, or you feel that weight, and right now you're saying, I just, I want to leave completely freed, completely healed, completely released in the name of Jesus. Would you just lift your hand right now? That's you in this place. I want to leave completely free, completely healed, completely released. I don't want to walk out of here holding it. I want God to do a miraculous work in my life. Not a shred of this is going with me. Not a piece of it's going with me. I just need him to wash over me right now with the Holy Spirit and just purify me and clean me right now in this place. Lift those hands up. I'm going to pray for you this morning. Jesus, you see every hand right now in this place. You see them lifted up, and you see every person, and you see their hearts. 
And God, I pray right now that you would do a work in their life. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would rain down upon them, that you would just begin to wash them. God, all of the shame, I speak to the hearts that are full of shame right now, and I pray that they are released in the name of Jesus. I speak to the heart that is broken, and I pray that it is healed and restored in the name of Jesus. God, I pray for those things that have bound for years and generations and generations and generations. God, the addictions that have plagued family identities will be broken in the name of Jesus, we repent and we lay them down at your feet and we give them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen.